What a great morning of worship. All right, well, you see the title slide there, and no one's running for the door yet, so that's a good sign. Um, the elders for some time have been wanting to address the issue of homosexuality from the pulpit because some of, some of us have asked, um, how can we engage this issue effectively in our day? Um, we sense that our thinking is a little bit fuzzy, perhaps, and, and that we need some clarity. Certainly, it is an issue that's front and center, isn't it, in the national debate, the political landscape. And um, this issue has even touched some of us personally in our families. It's not very often at TCF that we look at a cultural issue directly uh, during our preaching time here at TCF, but my prayer is that you would be favorable as we do so this morning. So could we pray together as we uh, look at this very serious and um, complex issue? Father, we thank you so much for this loving body and uh, that you've placed us here. Thank you that this body is incredibly loving and yet also incredibly committed to truth and the scriptures. So, Father, we ask that as we look at this issue critically today, that you would guide us and that you would open the hearts and minds of our understanding, like your word says. Uh, we just pray that uh, our hearts would be open and we'd be uh, thinking and um, hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit as we go. We commit this time to you in Jesus' wonderful, wonderful name. Amen. Well, as we think about this topic, here are some questions that might occur uh, to you. Um, what is the truth about the prevalence of homosexuality? What causes homosexuality? Where in the Bible are the scriptures that deal with homosexuality, and how many are there? Have any genetic causes for homosexuality been found? How do gay Christians understand the scriptures on homosexuality, those who both uh, profess uh, to be believers and gay at the same time? How should I respond to accusations that I am bigoted or discriminatory if I voice opposition to homosexuality? Should I befriend gays, avoid them, shun them, uh, rail at them, we might add, from the scriptures? What guidance is there in the word? Can same-sex attraction be changed? Uh, does my interaction with them vary based on how they self-identify? Are there levels of homosexuality? If a person experiences same-sex attraction, does that necessarily mean that they are gay? How can I help a family member who is experiencing same-sex attraction or thinks they might be gay? And finally, how can I be respectful and effective in my dealings with and witness to homosexuals? As we approach this subject, there are several assumptions um, that I think are important to make. First of all, this body, TCF, understands what the scriptures say about homosexuality. The scriptures are clear and consistent, aren't they? That homosexual behavior and lust is sin, and that God's standard for sexual expression is to be in the one man, one woman covenant of marriage alone. Um, here are some of the scriptures that um, talk about homosexuality in the Genesis 1 and 2 passage or chapters talk about God's standard for sexual expression in marriage. This is what the elders believe. You don't need to ask or be uncertain about what the elders believe. We definitely believe that um, homosexual sin is sin um, or homosexual behavior and lust is sin and that will never change. Um, we believe that, and we're going to stand with that. 
Um, homosexuality, number two, is complex rather than simple. It has significant moral, legal, social, and spiritual implications in our culture. We will be looking at several of those as we go along. And then point three, homosexual is controversial, with some wanting, some Christians wanting to passionately emphasize the church's need to be sensitive and caring toward homosexuals and all sinners, while others want to passionately maintain fidelity to the scriptures and the historic Orthodox faith. Some of us want both. I hope you feel a burden to want both. Amen? We want to be sensitive. We want to be as embraceive as we can, but we also want to maintain the truth of the scriptures. Um, an important point that I want you to catch this morning is that original sin has infected every part of our human nature. And therefore, in some cases, may even invade the direction of a person's sexual desires, even without their complicity. Now, if you disagree with that or that thought um, bothers you, I'd ask you just to suspend your judgment and uh, keep listening. Uh, it's possible for someone with ongoing same-sex attractions to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ through daily repentance and celibacy. The gospel requires faithfulness, not freedom from temptation. Such a person is worthy of the full support of this family of faith. How is it any different? Uh, a man who uh, battles lust, heterosexual lust, toward women. We stand with that man as long as he's walking in repentance and uh, fighting for purity. So why would we do any different with someone who fights same-sex attraction but is, is living celibate and um, fighting for purity? The church needs to engage finally rather than withdraw from this issue to be effective witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Okay, here are my goals this morning. I want to look at five ways or lenses or frameworks through which to look at homosexuality or through which homosexuality can be viewed. I want to separate truth from fiction about the prevalence of homosexuality in our culture. I want to develop between us a common language so that as time goes on, we as a church can discuss amongst ourselves with language that is accurate and meaningful. I want to discern with you that the concept of homosexuality as popularly understood is much too simplistic, it's inaccurate, and it's value-laden. It's full of assumptions, and we need to flesh those out if we're going to be um, accurate in our understanding. I want to uh, help you understand the difference between same-sex attraction, which sometimes in, in the PowerPoints will be referred to as SSA, same-sex orientation, which is another level of same-sex attraction, and what's called a homosexual identity. So try to keep those three in your mind, and we'll talk about those soon. I want to note for you some of the gay theological arguments and presuppositions used to support homosexuality. And then I want to uh, comment on where we are as a culture all in 30 to 45 minutes. Ha! All right. I know you're rooting for me, aren't you? Okay, so here are the five frameworks that we're going to uh, look at. This is kind of the an outline for the next few minutes of this presentation. The first is the gay explanatory framework. This is the lens or the framework through which popular culture looks at homosexuality as well as the gay community. The second is the gender identity approach. This is the lens through which um, Christian psychology looks at homosexuality. The third is the orthodox Judeo-Christian view, the scriptures, and um, how they look, how the scriptures look at homosexuality. The fourth is the 
gay theological view. That's, these are the um, interpretations of the scriptures that deal with homosexuality from a gay perspective. How do they understand the scriptures that condemn homosexuality? And then finally, the gay Christian view. This is, uh, uh, well, I'll explain it when we get there, but this is basically where a, a, a person self-identifies as gay and Christian. Okay? So let's, let's move through these. The first one is the gay explanatory framework. Again, this is the lens through which the media, our popular culture, and the gay community look at homosexuality. Let's read this together. This is the general view of the gay community, the media, and pop culture, which assumes that any feelings of same-sex attraction are indicative of a gay personhood or essence or identity and should be accepted by the individual and affirmed by all. You all know this perspective, right? That the minute you have a person has a same-sex attraction, oh, that means it's only a matter of time until you recognize that you're gay and um, you cave into that, that identity. This, identity or this framework also assumes that a significant portion of our population is affected, around 10% or more, based largely on the Kinsey Report and media reinforcement. It is not seen as a mental or moral disorder, but rather as a sexual difference and normative. Let me tell you about the Kinsey Report. Um, uh, Alfred Kinsey was a zoologist at Indiana University back around 1950. He wrote two books, The Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. They were firestorms at that time. And um, in, that, in that book, the study reported that 10% of American males were more or less exclusively homosexual for at least three years between the ages of 16 and 55. This was revolutionary stuff. Well, the media and, and culture, because it wants to promote same-sex um, attraction, grabbed hold of that 10% figure and has run with it ever since. But um, Kinsey's study came under a, under a lot of criticism because he oversampled uh, college campuses, prisons, and uh, male prostitutes. Add to that the fact that um, people who choose to self-report about their sexual lives would tend to be um, more uh, outspoken and have that kind of personality that would like to talk about these things. Um, and so it was, it's believed that his, his uh, research was, was deeply flawed. And we're going to look at the real numbers here based on better research in just a moment. The gender identity framework um, says this. This is the clinical view that the term homosexual is an oversimplified and confusing social construct. It's interesting that even within the gay community, they argue about whether being gay is part of their essence, their, uh, or is it just a social construct. Now, a lot won't admit that to you, and a lot of, uh, of homosexuals on the street, as it were, don't even know that that debate might be going on in academia, but it is. Um, so even the gay community has, struggles with, are we this way in our essence, or is this just a social construct, this idea of being gay that we've come up with to somehow describe our situation? Same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, and a gender identity must not be compressed into the singular concept of homosexuality as the gay explanatory framework does. So rather than look at homosexuality as one concept, um, in, uh, in, we, the, the more accurate way is to view it at sort of in three layers. And our culture wants to 
compress all three layers, same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, and a gay identity into one concept. And it gets very confusing, and it's way too simplistic. Those first two layers, SSA and SSO, are descriptive terms only and say nothing about the strength, the permanence, the meaning, the desire for or against uh, related to those feelings. The gender identity framework insists that identity is chosen in some cases in line with what's one's upbringing and biological propensities and in some cases opposed to them. Um, the Apostle Paul would be a good example of someone who chose to um, not identify with his upbringing. He, he also chose not to identify with sin, didn't he? Let me uh, take you to Romans 7, verse 20. You don't need to turn there, but Romans 7, verse 20, he says, but if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, wish to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So you see there that Paul had a choice to make, didn't he? He saw his spirit man wanting to live after Jesus Christ, but he also saw this sinful part of himself, this dark part of himself that he couldn't control. And um, he had a choice to make about who am I? Am I a sinner who occasionally loves God, or am I a lover of God who occasionally sins? He chose his identity to be in Jesus Christ, didn't he? And so uh, there's a good example of how our identity is chosen. It's not forced upon us. It's chosen. Let's also look at um, Philippians 3, 3 through 9. Paul writes, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes into this long description of his background, doesn't he? For I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless." But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For how many of you is that your story? You were raised a certain way, you were deep in sin, and yet God came and saved you and set you free and your identity is in Jesus Christ. Amen? I know that represents many of us. I was raised in a, what I would um, describe as a secular humanist family. Um, I have disavowed uh, that uh, framework through which to view life. Now my framework is that the Word of God is my authority, and uh, the Lordship of Christ is my authority. So, all of that to say identity is chosen. So here's a, a picture of what I'm talking about. So on the bottom, you could call this a three-tier model or a wedding cake model. On the bottom level, we have same-sex attraction. Let me read a description from uh, Dr. Sam Williams, uh, who is the President, no, excuse me, he's a professor of psychology at Southeastern um, Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, he says that same-sex attraction is an, in, an intentionally descriptive term describing the direction of a person's sexual desire. SSA can vary in strength and also in durability or longevity. It can be weak or moderate, or strong, and it can be temporary or enduring. The term SSA is merely descriptive and says nothing about the, how the person feels about these same-sex attractions, or what they intend to do with them, or actually do with their sexual desires. Nor does it say anything about their identity, 
who they are and how they label themselves. So a person um, with same-sex attraction experiences um, attraction towards the same sex. It may be toward one person. It may be toward several people. It may be weak. It may be moderate. It may be strong. But it says nothing about how they feel or interpret or want to deal with those feelings. Imagine a Christian who comes to you who's experiencing those things, but, but these feelings are absolutely unwanted by them. So we might even put a U in front of that SSA, unwanted same-sex attraction. Most of the people that I talk to who struggle with same-sex attraction, they do not want this. And if, if God would do a miracle uh, in their hearts and in their affections, they would give their right arm for that to happen. Um, it's not, sometimes people choose to be gay even though they don't have those attractions. But most often, people are wanting, even in the secular world, they're wanting to live by their values and by their faith uh, more than they are by their attractions. And so, same-sex attraction is that lowest level. Um, same-sex orientation, let, what does that mean? Let's read about that. Same-sex orientation is the term I prefer to use since the term homosexual often connotes an identity. What same-sex orientation means is that some people experience SSA in such a manner that it is predominant compared to opposite-sex attraction. And as such, it is strong, durable, and persistent. Like SSA, it is merely a descriptive term. So the people who are in the middle there who experience SSO, all that that is saying is that the desires for the same sex are strong, they're durable, they're persistent. On a scale of 1 to 10, they're up there in the 7, 8, 9, 10 um, uh, range, thank you, uh, as they fight these desires or give in to them. And then the top layer is the gay identity. That's where a pers person has chosen to self-identify as gay or homosexual and... Um, even that term is difficult to define because sexuality for many people can be very fluid. For example, if a person is gay for a few years or, or in a relationship with a same-sex person for a few years, but then moves out of that and, and disavows, um, is that person gay or not? Um, so this top layer, let's define as someone who has closed down on their identity as being gay, and it's not likely to change. Now, we're going to go on a little rabbit trail here and talk about prevalence. How prevalent is this? Remember that the Kinsey study said it's about 10% of our population or more. But um, this top, Lauman, Gagnon, Michael, and Michaels, is from the University of Chicago. It was done in 1994, so it's it's quite a bit outdated, but here are the numbers they came up with. SSA, they said um, about 6% of men and 4.5% of women experience some, some level of same-sex attraction. SSO, where that attraction is durable, strong, and persistent, about 2% of men and 1% of women experience it that strongly and that persistently. And then a gay identity is about 1.7% of all adults in our population. These are the true numbers, my friends. Whatever you think you're hearing on TV or experiencing anecdotally, um, these numbers have remained consistent over the last 20 years. Um, you might see there that I have Yarhouse citing a Gallup poll. Mark Yarhouse is a professor at Regent University. He has steeped his life in this issue. I was at a conference where he um, 
was presenting, and I went up to him. This was probably early of this year. And I said, Mark, you know, it's, it's been 20 years since the Chicago study. Um, homosexuality is everywhere in the news. It feels like we've reached a tipping point. Um, are those numbers by the Chicago study still accurate, or are those blown out of the water? And he said that Gallup did a poll about six months previous to our discussion um, and found that the numbers were roughly the same. Isn't that interesting? So even though it's everywhere, it's invading every field, sports and, uh, uh, you know, obviously the media and politics and everything, even though it's being thrust in our faces, um, I, I want you to understand the real numbers, that they're far fewer than we're led to believe. Okay, now let's go on to the orthodox uh, Judeo-Christian view. This is the traditional view of homosexuality based on the historic view of the scriptures, condemning homosexuality along with other sexual sins outside the covenant of marriage. SSA, SSO, and homosexual urges are a consequence of the fall for which we are morally responsible whether chosen or not. So that's true of all of us and, and every kind of temptation, isn't it? We're responsible for what we do with it. Um, Dr. Sam R. Williams writes, sin is a chronic condition and sometimes, but not always, a conscious choice. This is the human condition. Paul describes in Romans 7 where he goes back and forth, but he ultimately cites sin in me as the source of his sinful behavior. So the biblical starting point for a psychology of homosexuality is fundamentally no different than the origin of many of our sin-driven character flaws, whether it is selfishness or narcissism or jealousy or envy or a bad temper or worry or anxiety or mania or depression or addictions or whatever. Everybody is born congenitally defective with some innate biopsychological weakness, which finds its origin in the fall and subsequently in the hearts and bodies riddled with the cancer of sin. I need to pause for just a minute. There's some uh, points here that I want to make. Um, I guess what this is pointing out is that we need not be afraid of the idea that there might be a biological component to same-sex attraction. You know, for years, um, we Christians have, you know, maintained it's a choice, it's a choice, it's a choice. And that is true. What we were sensing when we said that was that identity is chosen. But with this more sophisticated understanding, um, it's, it's possible. I think we need to not um, die on that hill that it might, that it cannot be uh, biological for some people. Here's an example of Pastor Robert Jeffress, who is um, in Dallas. He says that some evangelicals were too quick to dismiss the po possibility of genetic predisposition when it comes to homosexuality. Jeffress, who leads the 11,000-member First Baptist Church in Dallas, hasn't stopped preaching that the practice of homosexuality is sinful but he no longer singles it out for special condemnation. It would be the height of hypocrisy to condemn homosexuality, but not condemn adultery or unbiblical divorce, he said in an interview with the Associated Press. Though the megachurch pastor said he is open to the possibility that one's sexual orientation could be genetic and not solved with cures or prayer, an argument the LGBT community consistently makes his biblical beliefs about homosexuality, 
homosexuality have not changed. So, you know, for, here's, here's, a, here's a parallel in my mind. For years, Christians believed that mental illness was not real, that it was spiritual. And in order to take that position, you have to believe that the brain cannot be invaded by disease. But we have come to accept the notion that the brain can be invaded by disease. And so we now are embracive of those who struggle with mental illness, including the need for medication and so on. And, and looking back, it's kind of silly that we thought that you know, the brain could not be invaded and everything, and, and that everything that looked weird uh, was a demon. And so this is similar to me. It's, it's not logical that we would think that um, sin cannot invade a person's attractions, that original sin cannot invade that part of a person. Um, so, again, if that is a, an offensive thought or if you think it's a heretical thought, uh, just hold it, suspend it, and, we'll, and we can go on. Oh, just one other note. Um, we, uh, I was talking to Basic about this, and I asked this question. Is Jeffress, Pastor Jeffress right to treat homosexuality as one of the many sexual sins or is he doing a disservice to the gospel by not elevating its special, heinous nature? And, uh, and Chuck and Diane uh, Rachel raised her hand and said something I thought was very profound. She said, the problem is not that we de-elevate de the abomination of homosexuality, but that we don't elevate all of the other sins to the same level. I like that. You know, if you think about it, we've, we've made affairs and, and porn addiction and sexual addiction kind of, you know, we've almost normalized those things. Uh, but, but perhaps those, rather than dragging homosexuality down to these other sin levels in our, in our kind of fuzzy thinking, we need to elevate these other sexual sins to the same level. It's food for thought. Okay. Um, here's, a, here's another thought from the Orthodox Judeo-Christian view. This is written by Mark Yarhouse again, the, uh, who has, holds a chair at uh, Regent University. In discussing whether sexual desire can be changed from homosexual to heterosexual, Mark Yarhouse writes this. He said, it appears to us that profound change of sexual orientation occurs infrequently. But again, this is irrelevant to the call of the gospel because conversion to heterosexuality, while a testimony to God's grace, is nevertheless not required for faithful discipleship. The change minimally demanded by the gospel is not conversion to heterosexuality, but chastity in one's state of life. And that call, costly though it may be, stands as a possibility for any of us. Down below you see Catholic theology calls same-sex attraction and orientation a trial. I like that. It's a trial to endure and be chaste. And Christian groups who work to help individuals change orientation of desire say this, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. Isn't that a powerful phrase? And I would say that's true for all of us. Whatever sin we're fighting, um, the opposite of that sin is holiness. The opposite of that sin is a rejection of idolatry, whatever the idol is. And so I think that's, that's well said. Okay, we're going to move on to the fourth framework view right now, and that is the gay theological view. 
This is the view that historic Christianity has had it wrong. The word sodomite is not in the Bible, is not biblical, nor is the word homosexual found in the original language of the Bible. This conceptualization of homosexuality remains compressed. In other words, the gay theologians have not teased out the same sex attraction, same sex orientation, and homosexual identity. They're still compressing them. Verses in the Bible that have been used to condemn homosexuality have really been condemning idolatry, not homosexuality, or condemning acting contrary to what is sexually natural for the individual, or taken out of context, or only meant to apply to the culture to which they were given and no longer are authoritative, or mistranslations. So if you look at the spectrum of arguments that gay theologians offer, to make homosexuality okay, um, it boils down to these, uh, these arguments. Um, idolatry, uh, acting contrary to what's natural, taken out of context, it's cultural, not, uh, not uh, throughout time, and mistranslations. Honestly, the, the arguments, our Sunday night group has been going through these arguments in detail and we've discovered that they are very weak, haven't we? Yeah, very weak arguments theologically. Can't be sustained. And then finally, the gay Christian view, and this is really the most dangerous view, I think, to us as, um, as God-fearing believers, and that is this is a natural growth of the gay theological view with an extra twist. Here, the identity issue is clarified and determined to be in Christ rather than in being gay. Um, so a person in this camp would say, I am a person who is in Christ who happens also to be gay. So they would, they would make their primary identity Jesus Christ, like we would, and yet they also make room for a gay lifestyle. Uh, the primary attribution of identity is Christ, and the secondary or subsequent identity attribution is in being gay. In this framework, even though identity in Christ is affirmed as primary, homosexual behavior and lifestyle is also affirmed and viewed as within righteousness. Of course, we would aggressively disavow this view, wouldn't we? Okay, so... Here again are the five frameworks, and what I would like to say is that I think, not I think, we, we would land on framework three, but we would also have some appreciation, I think, for framework two, the gender identity approach, because that brings us uh, sort of three additional uh, realities. Number one is that we're not to compress, compress homosexuality into one uh, concept that is vague and oversimplified and value-laden. We would also, we also appreciate from that view, the clinical view, that same-sex attraction and same-sex orientation are descriptive only, aren't they? They're not saying what the person intends to do about those feelings. They may be totally unwanted and unacted on. Uh, the person may have a deep fidelity to the Word of God and want to organize their lives around the Word of God rather than those attractions. Um, so we need to make room for that. And then the third great uh, point, I think, of the gender identity framework is the point that identity is chosen. Identity is chosen. It's a construct that we make about our lives based on all the experiences and understandings and relationships and traumas and victories that we've had. We, we, we create an identity out of those things. Is that clear, you guys? Okay. Now, here are some presuppositions of our culture that simply aren't true. For example, identity is not chosen. We've already, already talked about that. Uh, a good example of that is an article that Bill sent me by Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a, 
uh, Presbyterian pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City. And he's doing two book reviews, both by gay Christian authors. These are, these are authors who experience same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, but they're walking faithfully and celibately. One of the books is called Washed and Waiting. Isn't that beautiful? Here's a man with same-sex attraction, but he's deeply committed to his Christian faith, and so he writes a book called Washed and Waiting. Beautiful. Um, that man's name is Wesley Hill, and then the, the other author, book review he does, is by a man named Sam Alberry. Now, what I want to read to you is how, how they differ in how they identify themselves. Again, to make the point that identity is chosen. Um, Wes Hill calls himself a gay Christian, while Sam Alberry would refrain from that and say only that he's a Christian with same-sex attraction. Despite the fact that both men interpret the Bible the same way and call Christians to the same path, they differ here in how they self-identify, and each makes a credible case why they speak about themselves the way they do. Alberry thinks that calling oneself gay hints that homosexual desires are one's essential identity rather than who you are in Christ. Hill, who calls himself a gay Christian, doesn't want to give the impression to people inside or outside the church that the feelings he experiences are superficial or will just go away on their own. So here you have two faithful disciples of Christ, both living celibate, repentant, pure lives, writing books about their battle with same-sex attraction. One identifies as a gay Christian. The other identifies as a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction. I prefer the second. I would prefer that a person who experiences these feelings, who um, remains celibate because of his faith, would, I, would identify as a Christian who battles same-sex attraction. But you can also understand why this individual would use the term gay Christian, although I think that ends up being pr pretty confusing. Okay, a second uh, presupposition is that natural equals moral. Basically, uh, to save time, I will just say that in Romans 1, um, where we read this, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. The gay theologians say this. The persons Paul condemns here are manifestly not homosexual. What he derogates are homosexual acts committed by apparently heterosexual persons. The whole point of Romans 1, in fact, is to stigmatize persons who have rejected their calling, gotten off the true path they were once on. Another gay theologian agrees, saying what Paul seems to be emphasizing here is that persons who are heterosexual by nature have not only exchanged the true God for a false one, but have also exchanged their ability to relate to the opposite sex by indulging in homosexual behavior that is not natural to them. Weak. Weak sauce. So the gay community is arguing that um, Paul is not condemning homosexuality in Romans 1. He's condemning heterosexuals who have homosexual relations because it's not natural to them. So natural does not equal moral. Um, if, if you're talking with an individual who let's say, has a gay identity and is advocating that that's all right, they might argue that they were born this way and therefore it's approved of by God. Well, a very good response to that is, you know, what's natural doesn't necessarily mean moral, right? For example, I could be a very high testosterone male in a marriage and it would be very natural for me 
to go have sex with a lot of women because that's what's natural. And yet, that doesn't make it right. So you can come up with examples to defeat this argument. One author said this, the difference between doing what comes naturally and principled self-restraint is called civilization. That's pretty sharp. That's pretty good. And then finally, gay marriage and gay rights. Oh, excuse me. The purpose of marriage is to recognize an emotional bond. Have you ever thought about what is the purpose of marriage? You, you probably think, well, it has something to do with kids. But, but, but not every marriage produces children, and those, those marriages are just as righteous as those that do produce children, according to Genesis 2.24. For this purpose, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, guess what? There's no mention of children in that verse. So um, a childless marriage is just as valid in God's eyes and to be esteemed as any other marriage. So what is the purpose of marriage? There's an author named Ryan T. Anderson who is going around the country. He's a young man. He works for the Heritage Foundation. He's going around, pre uh, not preaching, but teaching about the purpose of marriage, not from a Christian standpoint, not from the scriptures, but from a public policy standpoint. And he's finding that not only are people in favor of what he's saying, but they've never heard it before. And I want to read to you the kind of things that he says, just one paragraph. In recent decades, marriage has been weakened by a revi revisionist view that is more about adult desires than children's needs. This reduces marriage to a system of approve, to a system to approve emotional bonds or distribute legal privileges. Redefining marriage to include same-sex relationships is the culmination of this revisionism, and it would leave emotional intensity as the only thing that sense, sets marriage apart from other bonds. Redefining marriage would further distance marriage from the needs of children and would deny, as a matter of policy, the ideal that a child needs both a mom and a dad. Decades of social science, including the latest studies using large samples and robust research methods, show that children tend to do best when raised by a mother and a father. The confusion resulting from further delinking childbearing from marriage would force the state to inter intervene more often in family life and expand welfare programs. Redefining marriage would, would legislate a new principle that marriage is whatever emotional bond the government says it is. So is marriage, um, is the government meant to sanction under its um, definition of marriage merely an emotional bond? No, because you can have an emotional bond to just about anything. And so already groups of three, four, and five are are, are advocating for why can't we get married? We have this emotional bond for each other. Um, or, you know, if you think of um, um, a pedophile who has an emotional bond or a lust bond or whatever kind of bond for a child. I mean, there's no end if you define marriage as an, you know, an emotional bond only. But this public policy argument that this is where children flourish, and the government should protect that, uh, is very, very powerful. Finally, gay marriage and gay rights will end bigotry. Bigotry, of course, means an intolerance of other views than one's own. That isn't true, is it? It just shifts bigotry to us and to Catholics. Here's, a, here's an article about a New Mexico Supreme Court uh, ruling where a photography business was, um, was sued and found guilty for refusing a gay wedding. In a closely watched case on gay rights, religious freedom, artistic freedom, the speech rights of businesses, 
and a host of other legal hot-button issues, the New Mexico Supreme Court today ruled that wedding photographers could not refuse to shoot gay ceremonies. When Elaine Photography refused to photograph a same-sex commitment ceremony, it violated the New Mexico Human Rights Act. Interestingly, New Mexico doesn't even have a state law um, banning same-sex marriage or endorsing same-sex marriage. They're doing it county by county in that state. So it's interesting that this state ruled this way. Um, it, uh, it violated the New Mexico Human Rights Act in the same way as if it had refused to photograph a wedding between people of different races. The court said in a unanimous verdict. The court rejected each of the photographer's arguments, particularly one in which the, the, the photographer had argued that her refusal did not discriminate against same-sex customers. She argued that she would, be, would happily photograph gay customers, but not in a context that seemed to endorse same-sex marriage. So she's just trying to exercise her freedom of religion, isn't she? And yet she was struck down and found to be liable. Um, it goes on. Also, here's an article about a Washington judge who was disciplined or reprimanded by his state because he uh, informed his colleagues that he didn't feel comfortable with performing homosexual ceremonies. He, he uh, reiterated that he did not wish to participate due to philosophical and religious reasons. Um, he stated that he believed that as long as other judges were in place to officiate the ceremonies that he could choose to decline. Well, Washington State came down on him and said, no, you can't refuse to decline. Um, and reprimanded him. So um, Tabor soon decided to decline requests to officiate ceremonies of any kind and get out of the marriage business altogether. Here's where we are as a culture. 14 states and the District of Columbia have legalized same-sex marriage. New Mexico, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania issue marriage licenses county by county. 13 states have active lawsuits over same-sex marriages. Some will be resolved soon, others will drag into next year. Three states with significant population will probably change their laws soon. And the goal of same-sex marriage advocates is to get as many states on board as possible in the next two to three years and bring pressure on the Supreme Court to rule on the matter since it is not tenable in the long term for the country to be divided regarding marriage laws. Bruce saw this information on a uh, PBS uh, news program and went to their website and got this for us. With that in mind, I want to just mention that um, the, found, the founder of the sociology department at Harvard University in 1930 was a man named Patiram Sorokin and he said civilization is possible only when marriage is normative and sexual conduct is censored outside of the marital relationship. He traced the rise and fall of civilizations and concluded that the weakening of marriage was the first sign of civilizational collapse. We should note carefully that he made these arguments long before anything like homosexual marriage had been openly discussed, much less legislated. But his insight was the realization that civilization requires men to take responsibility for their offspring. This was possible, he was convinced, only when marriage was held to be the unconditional expectation for sexual activity and procreation. Once individuals, especially males, are freed for sexual behavior outside of marriage, civilizational collapse becomes an inevitability. The weakening of marriage, even on heterosexual terms, has already brought a harvest of disaster to mothers and children. So way back in the 30s, the founder of the sociology department at Harvard was uh, saying things that are predictive even of today. 80% of young churchgoers see Christians as anti-homosexual, showing excessive contempt and unloving attitudes toward homosexuals. That's a Barna study. 
anti-discrimination law and anti-hate law against homosexuals is on a collision course with religious liberty. That is the freedom to practice one's faith and speak freely in the public square. We just saw that with the photographer, didn't we? And with the uh, judge in Washington state. There's a man named Eric Metaxas who says, we confuse two terms, freedom of religion and freedom of worship. Freedom of religion means you can, you can live out your faith in the public square. For example, the judge in Washington, if he had freedom of religion, he could have turned down homosexual weddings or same-sex weddings uh, because he would be practicing his faith under the rubric of freedom of religion. Freedom of worship means that in these four walls, you can do and say whatever you want. Metaxas says that we are already uh, moving very quickly toward freedom of worship in our culture. That we, in here we can do whatever we want, but out there we've got to submit to the secular worldview. And uh, lost my thought, sorry. Oh, he says that uh, they have freedom of worship in China and they had it in Germany in the 1930s. Today, that is what we have, freedom of worship. We are slowly privatizing our faith because of this great misunderstanding. Then, um, lastly, there was uh, just thinking deeply about this. You know, do, do we hide our heads in the sand? Do we grieve that our country as we know it um, is gone or all but gone? Um, I, I was pretty depressed, you know, a week or so ago, thinking about our country and so forth. But one thing that really helped me was um, the idea that we must advance without fear and not retreat, not quit. Um, think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, and Jesus Christ himself. These men did not quit. They continued to live prophetically in their culture. Back to Ryan T. Anderson. He says, today the church faces a great temptation to give up. There is a sense that the battle is lost and we must retreat from engagement in our hopelessly secularized culture. In response, Anderson cries, no, we must advance and not retreat. And he compares the battle that we're in now to the battle that we have faced with abortion. He says, men will tell the church today you're on the wrong side of history uh, in its defense of biblical marriage. He reminds us helpfully that the same was true in 1973 when the Supreme Court issued its infamous, its infamous Roe versus Wade verdict legalizing abortion. Public opinion was against the pro-life cause by a margin of two to one. With each passing day, another pro-life public figure evolved to embrace abortion on demand. The media kept insisting that all the young people were for abortion rights. Elites ridiculed pro-lifers as being on the wrong side of history. The pro-lifers were aging. Their children were increasingly against them. Does that sound familiar? Fortunately, this wasn't the end of the story. He goes on to say, courageous pro-lifers put their hand to the plow, and today we reap their fruits. He says, my generation, he's a young man, my generation is more pro-life than my parents' generation. A majority of Americans identify as pro-life, more today than at any point. More state laws have been passed protecting unborn babies in the past decade than in the previous 30 years combined. Could we see this same progress in the battle to uphold marriage? Yes, I believe we can, but it will depend on what we do today. Will we be discouraged into inaction, or will we put our hand to the plow and engage in the long, difficult, and challenging work of pushing back against the spirit of the age? I want to ask you to, to uh, make a decision to not give up, to not withdraw, 
but uh, let's, let's wage war. Let's push back against our culture in this issue of same-sex marriage and uh, the homosexual agenda. Amen? Larry told me that he heard a message uh, last week on this same subject, and the preacher was saying, the way we should engage is preach the gospel. The way we should engage is preach the gospel, that this wouldn't be such an issue if we were doing our job of preaching the gospel. So a hearty amen to that, and thank you for that, Larry. Here's, to close, a few scriptures to encourage us. Honor all people, 1 Peter 2.17 says, show proper respect to all men, including same-sex attracted men, same-sex oriented men, and men with a gay identity. Love the brotherhood, fear only God, and honor the king. I saw a t-shirt once that said, on the front it said, uh, respect every man, and on the back it said, fear no man. And I like that t-shirt. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And then finally, 1 Peter 4.12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Could we pray together? Close. Um, because you've been sitting so long, I just want to give you the freedom and invite you to stand. Uh, you don't have to, but... I imagine it would feel good. Father, we are thankful for your gospel. And we are not ashamed of the gospel of God that saves sinners in whatever state that we find ourselves. Thank you that you always triumph through Christ, through Christ Jesus. You always lead us in your triumph in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask for wisdom in our day. Lord, we ask for wisdom and effectiveness. We ask that we would be truly sensitive and compassionate and embracing, but also truly faithful to the, and, and full of fidelity to the scriptures and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would help us to pass the test and to be those who preach the gospel in our day and share with others as we go about, that we would push against the tide of those who have power in our culture, yet with gentleness, compassion, and love. Father, we ask you to help us love and support those with same-sex attractions and orientations who are fighting for purity and celibacy. Make room in our hearts, Lord, for them as a church and as individuals. And even those with a gay identity, Lord, may we remember that we too were lost in sin, that we were in the muck and filth and mire of life, and yet you raised us up and set us on the rock of Jesus Christ. So we pray we'd be humble, Lord, and that we would uh, be loving, that we would, like Jesus, be friends of sinners. We lay ourselves at your feet, Lord. We dedicate ourselves to you, and we ask that you would seal this message in the name of Jesus Christ. And all the people said, amen. Come on up and close us, Dave. I want to remind you that this last Sunday of the month, and that we have a basket up here for the benevolence. As we close, thank you, Father, for what Jim shared. Father, I thank you in Psalms 86 says, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart 
so that I may honor you. So, Father, I pray that for each of us, that today we would honor you. Teach us your ways, Lord. Give us humility. Give us boldness. And give us the right things to do, Lord. This we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We're dismissed.